So let me welcome everyone to uh, another week of the Serious Security Seminar, uh, something we do every Wednesday afternoon. And as a reminder for our attendees, if you have a question or a comment you'd like to share with the presenter, please do that in the Q&A. Do not put it in the chat. We're not monitoring the chat, but the Q&A is where we'll draw those questions. And given that, I am delighted to be able to introduce our speaker this week. Uh, this is someone I have known for many years. Uh, we won't say how many. Yeah, but, you, have, uh, you have the gray hair, I just lose it, so. Yeah, well, I've only got a few at the side. Yeah, a couple left. Um, but uh, Andy has had a, a long and illustrious career, most of it in security, although uh, I, I did see uh, in your LinkedIn profile, I think, as a wine steward uh, for a little while, yep. which is not a bad second gig to have if you're working in security. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Andy's most notable for a 20-plus year run at Akamai Technologies, uh, one of the, the bigger uh, security and communication-oriented companies in the world that many of you may not have heard about, but very, very important infrastructure for a lot of what we do. And he was responsible for building out the security architecture and then monitoring it as CISO. Uh, and since then, has worked on a number of projects with startups, seed funding, written a book, uh, and trying to translate his expertise as a CISO into something that the rest of the world can use in a reliable fashion. And he is going to be speaking on that to us today, something we're looking forward to hearing. So remember, if you have questions, they go in the Q&A. And with that, I'll turn it over to you to Andy. Thank you for being here. Great. Thanks, Beth. You know, it's really funny when I scheduled this, I intentionally chose the week after the Colts were going to play the Patriots because foolishly I expected that I would come in and get to be like, yay, the Patriots just won. Uh, for those who didn't pay attention, they, they did not do very well last week uh, in Germany. So, you know, fortunately, we didn't have to witness that here in the U.S. Uh, so today I'm going to talk about, you know, the, the challenges of building a security program. And this is not going to be a soup to nuts, like here's the specific things you need to do. This is about how to measure and how to think about the efficacy of your program and what are some of the simple tools you might want to look into having. Uh, if you're really excited by this and you want to go off and do more of it, if you Google CISO 91 days, you will get my 91 day guide for how to be a CISO, like your first 91 days. Here's how to approach it. It's a, a nice ebook. It's down. It's behind a registration wall, but it's one of those you can put in any data you would like. Um, so this talk is one about you know, how do you think about your security program? And the first thing, and I hate this phrase, so I'm going to start with it, which is defense in depth. And when we think about security, so much of security is rooted in the history of land warfare that we need to understand what was behind principles that people were using so we can figure out if they're applicable. So for those of you who do not remember World War I, because you were not around for it, um, this is what's known as the Maginot Line. Now the Maginot Line was built after World War I because France looked around and said, oh my God, trench warfare. You know, we were fighting for every inch of ground and we were building trenches dynamically. And we know there is going to be another war with this country over here, right? That Germany is awful. We know they're going to come back because of, you know, all the things that happened coming out of World War I. And so we want to prepare in advance. 
And our model is we would like to slow down the German infantry. And so they built what really is an engineering marvel of the world is the Maginot Line. You can still go visit it today because the Germans ignored it in World War II. Um, and it's you know, these amazing fortifications that had the Germans decided to invade France directly using the same tools that they had done in World War I, like France would have been able to hold them off for a very long time. And in fact, this is the key because their goal was to say, look, it's going to take you a while to get you know, from Germany to Paris, and we can trade that land for time if we need to, but we want to start by making it very expensive. Now, notice that as they did this, they said, okay, we're going to build this defense further out. The first thing they did was they left Strasbourg outside the fortifications because it, there was no way to defend this asset. You know, they, they couldn't actually build a wall on the other side of it because there's a river here and the other side of it was Germany. So they already had to abandon key assets. This did not make the folks living in Strasbourg very happy. You'll also notice that the fortifications here were very weak, and that's because Belgium objected. Belgium said, whoa, 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 how are you going to put us on the outside of your wall? And the French said, well, why don't you build a wall, to which Belgium said, we can't afford it. Um, so these fortifications were, were very weak. And now there's a forest in here that doesn't show up on the maps. And what happens in World War II, just to give you a very quick historical summary, is Germany puts all of its troops into armored personnel carriers, drives through the forest, goes straight to Paris, and basically ignores everything here. Um, so they basically built this defense that did not matter for the tools the adversary was going to use. But more importantly, they really didn't think about how the adversary would show up. And that is going to come up as we think about how to build our security programs. Second thing we look at at ancient times, let's go back even further, is the whole concept of the perimeter. Now, you may recognize a walled city here. One of my favorite things about walled cities is how much the Roman army actually decided to just build walled cities on the fly. Um, so you have now done your job and thought about the Romans uh, at least once today, so you can participate in that meme. But what the Roman legion would do is they would basically march only half of a day. Like they wanted to stop well before sundown because they would immediately put up a walled city around their encampment. And the longer they were going to stay somewhere, like every day you have bored troops, you have to keep them busy, they would continue to build a city where they were, right? They'd dig dirt, they'd put up walls, they'd put up palisades. And this was basically key to the defense, was to say, look, if once you're inside, we, we, we think you should be inside. Uh, and we want to check before you come in and out, because you're a scout, you're a hunter, whatever. So this is the access point where we're going to check to make sure you really belong here. But look, if you get inside and you don't belong here at some point, we'll notice and we'll kill you. Um, but we want to make that hard for you, so we're going to you know, really check you here coming into the perimeter. Now, of course, adversaries could just climb walls. So at some point, if you're going to be around for a long time, you add a moat. And now what's the point of a moat? And a moat isn't really the same concept of defense in depth where you trade land for time, right? Distance for time. Instead, what you're doing is actually defense in height. What you're gonna do is say, you have to defeat two different defenses at the same time. That's why we don't put moats a mile away from castles because then somebody could cross the moat and then worry about sieging the walls. Here it's like, oh, we need to get a ladder except the ladder either has to stretch across the moat or sit in the middle of the moat to build its way up. And to make matters worse, if you're defending a castle, you probably added something like people on top with boiling oil or arrows shooting down. Right? So this is a classic defense in height. People often mistakenly say this is defense in depth. There's three things you have to get through. But if you have to get through them all at once, it's a height problem, not a depth problem. It's going to be key as we think about some more of our security models. 
Now I want to pivot and think about one of the ways people often measure security is obviously through metrics. If you've ever reported to a board, which many of you hopefully will at some point in your careers, I've done this many, many times, you're asked to show some metrics. This is a very common pair of metrics for vulnerability management. Right? People often report sort of the total number of open vulnerabilities and the average age of the open vulnerabilities. So those are the blue line for total vulnerabilities, the red line for the average age of vulnerabilities. Just so you understand what the, the sort of axis is here, you know, every month there are 10 new open vulnerabilities that do not close is what I'm measuring here. Now that might be there's 100 and you close 90 within the first month, so they don't even appear on your metric, or there's 10 and you don't close 10. So first problem you can immediately see is we don't have any idea what the underlying environment is like. How many vulnerabilities per system? How many vulnerabilities are getting closed? This is just about open vulnerabilities. So the first thing you should always do is challenge this definition and say, okay, if what you're measuring is, is how long have the current vulnerabilities been unpatched? First question, what systems aren't even in this? And I've seen this dynamic play out. A board member looks at the CEO and says, hey, I hear that patch management is important. Are we patching all of our systems? To which every CEO says, of course we are. We follow industry standard guidelines on patching our systems. Board member walks out of the room. The CEO says, oh, shit, I got to make sure I didn't just lie to the, the board and goes and calls the CIO. Says to the CIO, hey, do we patch all of our systems appropriately? Now, what just happened is the board asked all of our systems, and they meant every system the company is responsible for. The CEO said all of our systems, but they're asking the CIO. So the first thing that they've just done is said, is it all of the systems the CIO is responsible for? Because CIOs rarely do governance, right? CIOs are an operational unit, so they're going to focus on their operations. So all of those systems in shadow IT or that engineering supports or that marketing supports. And if you laughed at that, it's true. Marketing supports a lot of systems in every company I've ever worked with. Um, they're just not even going to be covered. You know, often at some point, this is a game of operator that goes down until the answer that's really coming back up to the board is, yes, when Microsoft Patch Tuesday comes out, we patch our domain controllers for high severity vulnerabilities within one week. And that's not what the board asked, but that's the answer that they're going to get. So that's the first thing. What systems are not included? Now, what vulnerabilities aren't counted on those machines? If you have an IT organization that has application owners outside of IT that they treat as tenants, IT generally only reports on the vulnerabilities in the operating systems that they're responsible for. They're not always going to report on the tenant vulnerabilities. So you may have vulnerabilities that aren't counted. Maybe they're not even reporting on your network infrastructure. And you will be surprised one day when an iOS vulnerability comes out, sorry, Cisco iOS vulnerability comes out and, you know, your entire networking infrastructure goes kaput. And then, of course, sometimes people count vulnerabilities that don't really matter. Like these are open vulnerabilities, but are we talking about critical ones? Are we talking about information vulnerabilities? Are we talking about vulnerabilities that don't actually matter because your configuration already neutralizes them? If you think back to 2014 when Heartbleed came out, Anybody who did not enable uh, UDP was fine, right? If you were just TCP only TLS, Heartbleed didn't affect you, but you might've actually counted that vulnerability. So that's the first thing we wanna do whenever we look at our, our metrics for measuring our program is really challenge our definition to understand what do these things mean? The second thing we wanna do is, is play some what if games, right? So we've got this thing that's moving up sort of continuously. And we said, what if something new happens 
And in this case, you know, um, kind of forgetting what vulnerability this was that I, that I used for this. Um, oh, this was the um, the Minecraft one, the 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 Java log4j. Thank you. You know, what if we didn't patch it? So log4j happens. And so in this scenario, I've said, what if there's 10 extra vulnerabilities that happened to this month and we didn't patch them at all? And so look at what happens here. It's very subtle, but our blue line, which is the total vulnerabilities, you know, it increases a little bit, right? It goes up by about 10%, you know, a little faster than it would have. But the average age of open vulnerabilities went down. So this metric that says how bad we are, oh my God, we don't patch, it takes us forever to, to patch. It actually got better. Wait, wait, we just had a vulnerability that might be critical, just dropped. We didn't do anything about it. And the metric that we are reporting says, oh, that's okay, we got better. Um, now you can read both of these. And if you really understand what's behind the metric, you can now tell the story, but you're wasting time and energy telling a story. Now, what happens if a month later you patch it, right? So really this is just a boundary case problem of you know, it came out in one month, gets patched in the other month. Notice that all of a sudden we're sort of back on track to where we were, but it looks like we got worse. You know, and there's a little flat line here of no new open vulnerabilities because we just patched something a little bit late. Now, what if it just came in and we patched it, but it was in between those reporting windows? Nobody knows. Right? We just did this thing, you know, Herculean effort because it was a critical vulnerability. We actually got everything fixed within SLA and our metric does not show at all that that work happened. So this is a challenge when we're building security programs is really understanding how our metrics will tell the story in these edge case situations. But those edge cases are the only interesting cases when you're a board member. Like boards do not really care. They don't want to look at this metric to try to figure out if every month the routine is acceptable. That's your job to figure out how to report that, but they don't want to have to look at this. They want to say, oh, there was a big change in here. That clearly matters. Let me explore it. So think about new metrics and say, what do you really have? What are you really trying to measure? And for vulnerabilities, actually what we're trying to measure is really easy. We have asserted that there's an SLA. You can argue whether those SLAs are correct, whether it's useful to have them, but every compliance regime, every standard says, you should prioritize your vulnerabilities, usually critical, high, medium, or low, and you should set an SLA to fix them. So let's call it seven days, 30 days, 90 days, 180 days. The only question that matters, how often do you meet your SLA? That's it, right? New vulnerabilities come in. Well, either you hit your SLA or you didn't, it's gonna adjust this percentage. Right? It doesn't really matter. Like you might want to say, oh, there were 800 critical vulnerabilities in meeting this SLA, but really how many meet the SLA? Because we have a control, and if our control is helpful, then what we're trying to measure is SLA against the control. If our control is not helpful, go change the control. Don't worry about the metric yet. Figure out what that is. Now, this is what you should expect. Like you'd say, oh, these SLAs get you know, looser and looser, but notice that the, the compliance rate also gets looser. Like, I don't care whether my low compliance rate is 40% or 60%. That doesn't matter nearly as much as this 85 or this 70%, right? And maybe we're going to use the you know, Kev list to say that our APSS to decide what's critical or high. And so we're you know, pivoting towards the vulnerabilities that we think might matter more. But this is what's going to matter because this now is really hard for someone to tamper with. Although I'll come back later to how someone might actually try to tamper with this metric. So now let's pivot back, come back to sort of our original thing about thinking about defense, right? And so when we think about defense, humans think linearly, right? We're not used to thinking in three dimensions. We like to think in straight lines. 
but defense isn't linear, even in the physical world, let alone in cyber. Right? So we have to deal with attacks in sort of these three different dimensions. So let's sort of walk through your breadth, height, and depth. Right? So when you're building your defenses, you have to think about how the adversaries operate so that you're not repeating the, the errors of the past. And so let's talk about dimension first. So adversaries get to choose their point of entry. This is like really critical. So many people say, well, let's protect our, bit, our best assets. Adversaries don't care. Most adversaries, in fact, the, the vast majority of them, you know, multiple nines, you know, 99.99% of them are literally just spamming you, right? They're scanning for everything. They're looking for an entry point, right? The number of people who will sit and do offline reconnaissance to decide exactly what they're going to attack is minuscule. They're dwarfed by the people who are just going to look for an open door. So if you say, well, I've got my front gates, everybody comes in the front gate, so I'm going to defend that. And right next to it, you have a small gate that only five people use. The adversary prioritizes both of those pretty much equally. I mean, some people will say, oh, let's go hit dub, dub, dub first. But a lot of them are just doing scanning of IP space, looking for things. They don't even know if that's the same company. So the adversaries have to, are just going after all of these. So as a defender, you don't get to sit and look at which one's prettier and defend it. You actually have to defend all of them, especially the ones that seem unimportant, because that is where adversaries will land first. So my favorite tool for doing security management is a spreadsheet. Always is. If you do not have a spreadsheet somewhere in your security management program, either you're so amazingly good that you have tools that nobody else has, or you're missing something. And this is the spreadsheet that is most important, especially if you're in charge of a security program, which is the list of the types of assets you have. This is not an asset inventory. This is an asset inventory inventory. So you might say, we have a public cloud, right? Maybe we have like 70 public clouds. Okay, one metric to, that I'm gonna use to be able to spot like, is this a good inventory, is how many systems are in it, right? And if you can pull up that number in an easy automated fashion, that's great. Write it down, put it up here. And then do this for every class of system that you have. And when you wanna think about what a class of system is, you know, I like to use sort of deployment methodology, like who is in charge of deploying software there or managing the applications, how do they do it? Combine under those, because that's the way in which your company will tend to think about it. So if you have production servers that the IT organization maintains, great, they've got you know, cases, their system, we'll use that to measure it. You know, we've got the dev and build environment that nobody's sure how they maintain it, but kind of we at least have a dev tools team that maintains the lab. So great, pop that in. All of the enterprise endpoints, these laptops everybody's using, the servers that people have, the SaaS services, like those, those are assets that you have to worry about. And that number is going to be massive. Most people don't realize how many SaaS services a normal company has. And the reason you want to have this, you want to keep it nearby you all the time, is because whenever the question is asked or answered about any piece of your security program, someone says, oh, do we do X? And somebody pipes up and says, well, yes, we do X. You know, yes, we rotate passwords every 90 days. What you need to do as the person responsible for a security program is say, in what environment are they answering that question? And in what environment is that not true? Right? Because otherwise what happens is you begin to believe the Kool-Aid that everybody shares, because everyone wants to talk about what's good, Nobody wants to talk about what's bad and they forget. And they're like, oh, we have this dev environment that that's where all of our software gets built. Like, oh, we don't have to worry about that, you know, unless that's what the adversary is trying to compromise. And so you have to keep track of all of that. And I love just how easy and hard is it to collect data about these environments? 
right? Because as a, as a leader, you're more focused on the process sometimes. And so measure the process to say, hey, like, you know, I once went, we tried to do, we had to do a survey and said, let's just figure out what the vulnerability management state actually is across the whole business. Went through every one of these. And it took me two program managers, six weeks to get us numbers that were just, what is the open vulnerabilities and patch rates? That's all we asked for. You know, we had that number, we data, we presented it. And, uh, you know, classic management, you know, comes to me. So I turn around, I present it. And uh, the CEO says, great, I want to review these numbers every month. And I'm like, I can't do that for you. I'm like, well, why not? I said, well, it took two, two people six weeks to do this. So for me to you know, get this to you every month, I would have to dedicate three FTEs just to data collection. And maybe that data collection, you know, pushing people to go pull the data, it would get faster over time, but that's not really an efficient use of like 4% of my workforce. So that's what you're going to want to measure because this is then your rating to say, oh, we can't get better than this because we don't have data to pull. So that's how you're going to think about breadth in your environment. And then we're going to pivot and now we're going to talk about height. And so the way that we're going to think about height as a defender is to really think about how well our defenses stack. And now I used the model originally of the moat and the, the bridge and the wall behind it. And let's think about those for a second, right? Assume your moat is actually right up against your wall, such that there is no way to cross the moat and pause, right? That gives you some fantastic height as a defender. But what if there's one foot of space? Now, in the real world, in meat space, like that's not very useful, right? Sure, you can swim across and now you can stop and you can take your breath. You're like standing in this one foot of space. Then you pull your ladder out of your pocket because you've got a pocket of holding that carries this whole ladder. You set it up and now you climb up. You really don't get the benefit of waiting. Cyber, you get the benefit of waiting, right? So if you have, uh, let's take uh, phishing for an example and you know, two-factor authentication, right? Most of you probably are using 2FA in one or more places, but a lot of people aren't using an integrated FIDO2 compliant MFA. Right? Think about push-based SMS, where first you log in with a password, and once you have validated that this is the correct password, the system will push you know, a, an OTP code to someone to say, hey, is this really you? Hopefully they're pushing it to you. You respond with the code. Right? Now an adversary can attack one and then attack the other. Because if they don't have the right password, they can't get a code pushed at all. So they take their massive database of usernames and passwords. They go hammer the website. You know, maybe it's very slowly or whatever their authentication engine is. They find all of the accounts that work. They have a valid password for. And now they're going to do some form of attack. You're probably targeting SMS fatigue. You wake up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden your phone's exploding with, hey, you know, click here to accept this authentication. And you're a developer, you're tired, you assume it's some API you wrote that, you know, cron job that's going crazy, you push and say, yes, adversary just got into your environment. Or it's an OTP code and they call you and they say, hey, I'm from the help desk, I just pushed an OTP code to you, can you validate that's really you? Right, and now they're gonna use that. So those are things that didn't actually stack in height, they're actually gonna be depth. And so we just wanna think about how, what controls do we have that we think actually work well together? And so let's look at some, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at public cloud because every environment is going to have different ones, right? So inventory is actually the root of almost everything on height. I got to know what it is to know what I'm building on top of it, right? So maybe I'm going to say vulnerability management is the first thing, because obviously if there's a vulnerability here, you're going to bypass all the rest of my controls. So I have to make sure my systems are patched. So we've got our SLA and now here, the qualitative rating I want to use 
and this is one that I don't necessarily recommend exposing to your stakeholders, they don't really like it, is how much executive oversight is required for this to happen, right? If I have an automated inventory system that I can just go ask, and it's just there because the operators like it, that's great, no executives required. But if vulnerability management requires the CISO and every vice president in the company to pay attention to the engineering teams, to push on them, to even be able to collect this data, that's a really bad system. Like that's, that's like you're living in the dark ages. And some things just require some executive oversight. They're moving along and if, if the executives can't afford to look away, but they don't have to push it. And so let's look at some of these things. You know, we talk about configuration hygiene. Here I'm using sort of an old metric that just is a count, like count how many configuration problems you have on your systems, you know, where there's a weak config. Because again, like those are myths that may be, you know, setting yourself up. Like, oh, I have to turn on authentication and access control. If I don't do that, these next two don't matter, right? So it's how they're gonna stack together. Let's think about authentication. Two different ways we wanna think about authentication. One is users and one is non-human users. Right, so users, probably the authentication we're looking for is, are they using some form of FIDO compliant MFA? Um, you know, if it's, you know, can it be key based? You know, so we're using some form of cryptographic key rather than using a password, you know, and what is our compliance rate for our users, right? Do they have an up-to-date protect authentication credential? For machines, this is a little harder. You, know, you can't necessarily just say, oh, I'm gonna issue all of my machines a, a second factor. Um, although that would be kind of nice, but they only get one factor. There's no body part to a machine. You know, maybe you put an HSM on them, but your question really is going to be how protected are the machine identities? You know, is this a file sitting on disk unencrypted, or is this loaded up into an HSM or a virtual HSM? You know, something that is protected in some way so that the credential can't just be taken off the machine. How much is the credential actually going to be tied to the machine it's on versus being portable? And that can get very challenging in doing you know, management with dynamic systems that are coming up and coming down. Access control, you know, what somebody, when somebody has authentication, what are they using it for? And you can think of this as sort of partly authorization. And the best metric I've ever seen is grants utilized. And so if you think about a grant as being some permission that is set up, right? I have a user, I have a resource they would like to access at some privilege level, and either I'm gonna say yes or no, that's a grant. So we set up some set of grants and let's take, we have a hundred people in our environment, 600 sysadmins, we have a hundred servers that they're gonna interact with. That's, you know, if I give them all, all of the access that is 10,000 root level grants. I'm not gonna be granular about root versus non-root. And now let's look and say, well, who's actually administering what? And let's just say that the systems tend to come in groups of three uh, and you know, or five, so I can divide it evenly. And each user is part of an admin pool of five that manages five machines. So each user only needs five grants. They have 100 grants. Um, and so you know, at best, my utilization rate is 5%. It's probably even lower than that, depending on how the individual teams are dividing up work. Maybe each person actually manages one machine. So what you're gonna wanna do is think about like, how do I get this number into the high double digits? Like 100% utilization is mostly unrealistic unless you have an amazingly responsive ops team doing just-in-time grant administration. Um, you know, at Akamai, I had the number well into the 90s because there were so few grants actually ever given out to anybody. But we did have some grants that were very widespread. Like you could get a grant that gave you read-only access almost anywhere, um, and people did use those. But those, we, we gave them out a little more, you know, easily. Um, but we would go look, and it's like every 90 days, who's using what grants? And if you're not using your grants, we're going to cut them down. 
Exploit monitoring, or sometimes called threat detection. This is actually an awful metric. I have it here because I like to call it out, right? Because dwell time is an inverse metric, much like the first vulnerability management metric I talked about. Which, and this is usually how long does the adversary sit once they're in undetected before we find them? And so what often doesn't go into here is like, oh, somebody broke into a system, they were immediately detected, and we you know, kicked them off the system, revoked privileges, whatever it is. That often isn't counted. So let's think about what happens with this metric. If I want to improve this metric, the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to say, well, how is somebody getting in that I don't see them? Oh, I found a whole class of ways that they're breaking in, so I put in place a defense. Right? And all of a sudden, like all of the easy finds, the things I was able to detect and do repetitively that maybe manually took me 30 days, so maybe half of this number is 30 day dwells, and I took those dwells and I eliminated them entirely, this number actually goes up. Right? So you want dwell time to actually increase. In a healthy environment, your dwell time approaches infinity, not zero. At some point, it gets so high, it actually drops back to zero because there's a discontinuity that once you've closed every possible way somebody can sit and linger, then they can't sit and linger forever. But every time you find a new way to find somebody who's lingering, you actually drive this metric up, not down. And then I like to call it data protection as a place that I think security teams have actually done a really poor job of designing defenses around them. And we still don't really understand, like public cloud has really exploded uh, data in a way that is very unhealthy. In the old world and of IT, where it was all in the data center, you had basically one database that had all of your crown jewels in it. And if somebody said, oh, I want access to that data because I'm this cool you know, data scientist, I want to do research on it, everyone was like, heck no. Like the database admins were like, nope, nope, you may not run queries on the production data set. Um, and if you said, well, can you make a copy of it for me? They'd be like, yeah, put in a request for that, send it to the CFO, see if you can get $3 million to replicate this entire infrastructure and we'll copy it over for you. Of course, that never happened. But if that data is sitting in the cloud and you want a replica of it, you press a button, you've got a duplicate of the data, run whatever queries you want on it, except now you have a complete second data set that is unused but is your production data. And most people, when they're doing development, forget to clean up those data stores unless you're you know, actively hunting and finding them to save costs. So we really don't have a good metric here that would let us govern our data protection program. There's a lot of early stage startups focused here, a lot of CISOs thinking about it. But right now, this is still, I think we're head in the sand trying to ignore the problem more than we're solving it. Now let's think just a little bit about depth. Adversaries move laterally. I have sort of drawn this you know, forward or deeper into the environment. But when we talk about lateral movement, really all we're talking about is somebody has gotten into the environment and they're moving somewhere else, right? So that's sort of that east-west movement because we're thinking only that depth has two dimensions, either it's internet accessible or it's not. And once you have crossed over that boundary, you've gotten into a system in the DMZ, you can move laterally all you want. Now, we could think about a lot of defenses that might go into here around micro-segmentation, your different ways to pre prevent this. But What's interesting is defenders often think from the inside out. So we go find our crown jewels, and then we say, well, what are all of the documented ways that somebody could get to that crown jewel? Like, here's our data store of PII. What databases have access to that? You know, what applications have access to those? Right? We work our way outwards. That's the exact opposite of the way the defender, the adversary is going to work. If the adversary is going to come in, they're going to break into an edge system, and now they're going to look around and say, oh, what credentials are here? Oh, I see a credential. Admin, let's look and see where it's connected to. Okay, let's go follow and move inwards. 
And so you may not realize that, oh, there's this developer that they set up a machine um, right next to our production database because they wanted to try out a new query language, but it would only run on a different OS than the systems we'd had. So they had set up their own machine. It's got a direct connection to production, but it's not a documented direct connection. And it's just sitting there, some adversary breaks into it, and they're just going to spot over. And before you say, God, Andy, that is so improbable, that could never happen, that is actually an incident that happened to me. Like literally one of our most important data sets, we actually found a machine sitting next to it. And the only reason we found the machine is the person who had broken into it, hopefully did not notice what was right next to it, but had installed a crypto miner. And the crypto miner was doing a lot of network traffic and the network team called us and said, hey, there's a machine that we don't know what it is. Um, and network is very, very, you know, heavily constrained in this data center and it's spamming everything can you guys go hunt it down for us so we started we're like oh this is a problem you know and the thing i've always said if you decide to go into being an adversary the easiest way to clean your tracks is not to wipe a machine it's to install a crypto miner on it or whatever you know the later thing is because most security teams say oh it's a crypto miner thank god it could have been so much worse Right. So if you're on the security side, the fence side, and you ever find the, oh, it's a crypto miner, you should just assume somebody put it there to cover their tracks. Side note there. So we need to think from the inside out. And what do we do here? The easiest way is actually to think about what an attack scenario is. And so think of it similar to like Little Red Riding Hood, right? There's an attack scenario of, you know, the wolf asks her where she's going, gets her name, gets her grandmother's name, goes there first, sets up a watering hole attack. But it's not, it's an easy watering hole. Like, I know exactly where you're headed. I know exactly who to pretend to be. And so what we want to do is we want to first define, like, what is an attack? Tell a simple story. So let's take ransomware. Right? Ransomware is a very simple story. Adversary gets a foothold in our environment. Once they have the foothold in our environment, they're going to move laterally using either well-known exploits. You know, for a very long time, it was all eternal blue-based exploits, or they're going to use administrator credentials. That was sort of how NotPetya worked. Um, and they're gonna move laterally, they'll compromise more and more systems. And as they compromise a the system, they functionally wipe the machine by encrypting the data on it. Maybe they're encrypting it to a key that we might get access to if we pay a bribe, but we don't know for sure, right? That's the simple story. So how do we define an effective defense? Like, really, it's, it's in the story, right? MFA is actually a fantastic way to stop crypto mine or ransomware, especially for your admins, you know, or setting up, you know, lateral admin privileges, removing those. Like, if you're using AD, there's a bunch of ways to do this. So make sure you're doing them. And of course, they're mitigated by data backups. And before you laugh and say, Andy, why are you recommending data backups? I actually don't mean old school, like, oh, it's hard, you know, back up everything. I actually mean new school, like everything just lives in the cloud. Like, I don't have any data on my laptop that matters because I'm partly moving from machine to machine on a regular basis. Everything I use is stored in the cloud. It is backed up. So if ransomware hits one of my machines, eh, fine, whatever. I go get a new machine. I instantly have access back to all of my data. Um, and so then be able to narrate your story because you need to be able to convince people, you know, when the next not petcha happens and your board says to you, hey, are we defended? You get to say things like, oh, you know, we're using FIDO MFA for all of our users. So we're not really worried about credential theft. We've implemented three-tiered active directory administration. Um, and if you do not know what those four words mean together and you're using active directory, you need to fix one of those two facts. Either stop using active directory or go learn about active directory tiering. And we've eliminated the central jump servers 
you know, that had all the credentials stored on it. Maybe we've gone to something like a Bastion Zero style model that's you're letting people you know, pass through without getting direct shell access. You know, lots of different ways someone might actually do that. And so this is how you know if you're effective is when you can tell the story and tell the defense story. And one way to think about how to tell these stories is to look at the safety world. I'm a big fan of Nancy Levison's work, uh, Engineering a Safer World, where she talks about tell the story of unacceptable losses. What is the unacceptable loss? What were the hazards that led to that unacceptable loss? And then what are your controls to mitigate those hazards? Right? And that safety communication works just as well on the security side. And the last dimension is time. We do have to recognize that adversaries are waiting. And I'm putting air quotes around waiting because what it really is, is you always have another adversary. So if somebody scans you who were well defended, you have a break in your security, there's somebody else scanning right behind them. So the first adversary misses it, the second one gets it, and they're gonna show right in. So you need to make sure that your controls are continuously improving. I like to look at this in the same way that, um, you know, in the, in the business side, we say if a company isn't growing, it's shrinking. Well, if your controls aren't maturing, they are weakening. And so you need to make sure they're continuously weakening. And so you need to ask yourself, like, are your processes maturing? So think about what overtime efficacy might look like. Like, I've got these numbers today. What do I think they need to be over time? And then what missions would actually mature the controls? And SLAs is a fascinating thing because most of the missions to improve SLAs have nothing to do with security. It has everything to do with build process. You know, you might look at this seven days and say, oh, we're hitting it 85% of the time. What's the biggest holdup? Oh, the biggest holdup is it takes us three days to qualify software and four days to put together a release and get it out. Well, that's my seven days right there. So it basically means nobody can argue with me and I have to exactly hit the right day of the week to like slide everything in. Because if I come in one day behind that major production release that just started its rollout, like I'm not gonna be able to do my rollout on time. Now, the solution here is not to you know, deprioritize production releases. It's to say like, how do we get this and, and improve the latency? One of the best effective things I ever did at the CISO of Akamai was a system that we called Hyperdrive, which was moving forward to a more CI/CD model for rolling out software because we predated like all of the models. We built things that were like cloud ready, cloud native before there was a cloud. And we were really excited that we could roll out software, you know, every end days. So I'm not going to say what end was um, because it was a miracle in 2000. By 2020, it was not very exciting how fast we were doing it. Pulling five days out of that latency was a miracle. And it all of a sudden meant I could hit all my patches because nobody was fighting me about inserting releases you know, in things. And then think about how you track deviations, right? Because you have an SLA violation, and what you're going to have is an SLA exception process, which looks something like this. Someone says, well, we can't fix it in seven days because X. And somebody has to approve that you're going to violate the SLA, right? Maybe that's the CISO. Bad idea, by the way, should never be the security team approving exceptions. It should be whoever's up in their management chain who's senior enough in consultation with the CISO who's going to say, hey, by the way, why are they doing this? Because what we noticed happened was things that had a seven day SLA or a 30 day SLA, uh, 12 hours before the SLA expired, we would get a request to violate the SLA. They'd say, there's no way for us to fix this now, right? Can we violate the SLA? The answer is, well, you're going to violate the SLA. You are literally on path to violate the SLA. There is now no way to solve it. But if I look at your timeline, you actually knew five days ago you were going to violate the SLA because you made the choice not to disrupt an existing release 
or you made a different, whatever your choice was. That was the point for you to have said, we need to violate the SLA because we're doing a trade-off. Like more important to get out this production release, less important to fix this. The moment you make that choice, you've chosen to violate the SLA. If that wasn't escalated early, that's the SLA violation. So we started you know, tracking and saying, and you're very nascent saying, okay, if you don't get an SLA exception, half of the time towards the SLA, so three and a half days, 15 days, 45 days, then you don't actually you know, get a pass on it. You just have a different SLA violation. You violated the escalation SLA. Track those as well, because you will find that if you're like, oh, it's not an SLA violation, if you get an exception, then you'll have no SLA violations because everybody will get an exception on the very last day. So remember, as you're designing your security program, things you're going to do, you're going to defend with coverage, right? Make sure you know where everything is. Make sure your controls are actually comprehensive, that they actually work together in the way that you mean them to, to make it hard for adversaries to even take one step. Know the context of what's actually behind even your least important systems, like build attack chains so you can see the path an adversary will take. And make sure you have continuity, that your controls are getting better. This is the whole realm of the compliance world is making sure that controls that you built to protect yourself still work years later when you're not actually watching them, right? Because it's one thing to say, oh, look, we know we fixed this, but it gets reverted. Nobody's doing it. Nobody's watching. Adversary breaks in in a way that you knew they could do and you thought you had fixed years ago. So thank you. There's my, I'll actually leave it up on that one because that's a more fun an end slide for it. I think now we're going to have some time for some Q&A. Um, and Spaff, I don't know if you want me to try to go pull up the Q&A or if somebody's going to pull it up and read for me. I can read them to you awesome. if you'd like. That's let better because then I don't have to like go find my keyboard. That's right. Um, let me start with a short one. And by the way, thank you for all of that good advice. I think that hard won advice for many of the people we have here have uh, not, not actually had to deal with some of the situations you have. Um, and so th this will be very helpful. Um, I'll start with the short one first. How do you build an SLA plan if multiple companies are involved in server management? So I think, th so this is going to be a, is a great one because when we tried to roll out the SLAs uh, at Akamai originally for vulnerability management, everybody wanted to say, well, I'm going to do the SLA from when I'm informed of it. Right. So we actually had this, this, well, you had three people involved. It's, well, we have to get it from the vendor. The vendor has to get it to IT who's going to qualify it. Then IT has to work with the application owner to roll it out. And IT and the application owner wanted to have separate SLAs. Each of them would hit their SLAs. And my attitude was as the security stakeholder, there's only one SLA and it is end to end, right? SLA is from you know, public notification that there exists a vulnerability until it is mitigated. That is your SLA. Right? If you, the IT administrator, has a vendor who's doing work for you, that doesn't get you off the hook on your SLA. In fact, you're responsible for the vendor. So you need to go establish an SLA with your vendor. If they can't satisfy it, like we have a problem, but we should be noticing that. So we once had a vendor who was like, we're not going to fix this. Right? And I'm like, that doesn't get you off the hook if we have vulnerable systems. I'm not going to not report it. And so now it's a conversation as a business to say, what do we want to do about the fact? Because the purpose of the SLA is not to hold the feet to the fire and application owner and make them look bad. It's to identify places where we as a company have a problem that we're not patching our systems the way that we, the company, expect them to be patched. So 
you don't want to make it so complex that things can drop between the cracks of your metric and people not notice the problem above it. Great. Okay, the next one's a little long. Okay. Um, uh, but there's an example. When, and I'm gonna read it in the voice of the per person posing the question. When I was working as cloud discovery and assessment engineer, I had to get the list of server inventory that was already maintained by clients and integrate it with discovery of on-premise servers I performed using Azure Migrate. I had a hard time trying to get proper lists of servers with accurate data, which would match with my discovery and help with assessment and migration. My question is how do we ensure security with this amount of disconnect between teams and maintenance of inventory lists and what tools apart from Excel can actually help companies protect the integrity of their data? Multi-part question there, and I'm going to do a small vendor pitch for one of the companies in my environment, but there's a lot of other companies you could use for that. Um, there are a number of security companies that this is specifically a problem that they've tackled to solve, which is being able to take disparate sources of inventory and like measure them against each other. So you want example, Vulcan Cyber, which does cyber risk management. Uh, one of their competitors, Kenna, does a similar thing. Uh, Exonius also does some stuff in this space. So. In a sense, what you often do have to do is say, I am going to do inventory of inventories. And so if I have my discovery and you have your discovery, I have to just have a scalable way to rationalize them. Now, one thing that you should be doing is coming back and saying, hey, how do we get this better? We don't want the company to keep having different or the client in this case to keep having different data. And so what recommendations can you come up with? come back to the client they're just as an aside of hey just so you know i who'm a professional in this field like had difficulty finding all of your systems being able to do the migration that's going to be a challenge for you post migration because xyz right that's an additional finding that's more value add you get to provide i would love to say there's an easy answer to this one but at the end of the day like this is the hard problem of security is in many cases, there is not the level of operations discipline among our stakeholders that would make our job easy. But if that discipline existed, we wouldn't have jobs. Personally, I actually wish that discipline existed. I actually said this to a group of CIOs recently. I was at a CIO conference. They were talking about the, the, the role of the CISO. And somebody said, like, why do CISOs have so much power? So the reason CISOs have power is because CIOs are not doing their job, which at first, people were like, what are you talking about? And I said, every time somebody rolls out a new system, your attitude is unless you get to choose and control and do everything about it, you won't keep track of it. It doesn't go into your inventory. You call it an unsupported system. It's a shadow IT, whatever it is. And you do everything you can to forget that it exists. And because you do that, the company has security risks. And every one of those risks is what justifies the existence of a CISO that we come in and we will hunt down and find all of those systems. We'll use our tooling now that some of it exists, but even if it's just brute force, like you know, the reason that CISOs first existed was CIOs didn't want to do e-commerce. So somebody went and built an e-commerce platform and some security person said, well, I will help you secure it because that's important while the CIO looked the other way. And all of a sudden we had a CISO. So if this problem was well solved, we wouldn't actually have jobs because this would actually be a much easier problem space to be in. Great. Um, so I'll toss in a question of my own here. Um, what, what I constantly tell people is that one of the reasons uh, security gets more and more difficult is we keep increasing the complexity. We keep adding things without trimming off old things. Um, 
sometimes that's a matter of just the new bright shiny. Sometimes that's a matter that we don't view that our existing uh, tool infrastructure is working well. So we're going to add another one on top of the mix. Do you have any advice about how to go about on a regular, I won't say purge, but a regular simplification of the environment to better manage it? So actually, I think purge is a great, great example. And look, I'm part of the problem. If I go look back across my career, I have done software development, usually in a security context. Yeah, I think I probably got like maybe a dozen major projects. Every single one of them was written in a different language. I literally learned the language to do a problem, solve a problem, and then moved on, right? That's a, that's a problem that literally is like, we're not refining, we're just sort of throwing away and rebuilding, but often we don't throw away. And so that's what you have to go look at and say, well, how do we end of life things? Because what usually happens is somebody rolls out a system, it gets 12 different use cases, and then the next system that comes along solves for 10 of them. So we migrate 10 of our use cases over and we leave two of them behind because the people that use them refuse to stop doing it and the company refuses to support them, right? And that disconnect is what leads to much of the sort of bloat in IT environments is this disconnect between what the company is willing to you know, pay for to take good care of and what the employees are willing to stop doing. And so that was a regular thing. The, the first production network that Akamai turned off, like we had a lot of production networks that did different things. The very first one that was turned off was actually run by a security program manager. That she just said, like, we just got to turn this off. And it was down to like it had two customers. Everybody said, well, of course, one day we'll, we'll turn this off. It was not profitable to have around. But we had these two customers. They were paying us money. It was not as much as the cost of running the network. And she said, okay, everybody has said we're going to turn this off. But there's no process to do it. So we'll make a process up. And once we had done that, we drove this process from end to end. We shut down that network. Uh, and all of a sudden, like the ops teams were like, oh, this is possible. They took our process and they started running it against other legacy networks and getting rid of them. Um, and so it was this real benefit to us to be able to do that. And so sometimes you do just have to chase down and say, what are the things we're going to get rid of because they're too expensive for us? Um, and security can lead the way and sort of show that it is possible. So find an ally. Don't try to look for the most important thing to shut down. Find something that an engineering team that's stuck with maintaining or an ops team stuck with maintaining it wants to shut down, but doesn't feel like they have the political power to do it. Because often security has the political power, but not the feet on the ground. And if we can connect ourselves with the people who want it done, but don't have the power, like things will happen. But if we go find somebody who's like, no, no, I don't want you to shut this down. And we start pushing on it. They're going to drag their heels. They're going to waste everybody's time. And the most important thing is to be effective in your use of time because we have so little time compared to how much good work there is to get done. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of shadow IT comes in as well is yep. that unsupported applications because somebody really feels they need it because they don't know alternatives or they don't have support for an alternative. Yeah, um, and, and write, down, write down the requirements. Like we had people that we would go to and say, look, I'm not IT, I'm not gonna tell you to turn off this machine. I'm going to tell you that you're running this system. Here's the security requirements to run a system. And they would look at it and they're like, I, I'm not funded to do this. I'm like, well, you thought you were funded to deploy a system. This is part of deploying a system. Let's go talk to your management, see if they'll give you funding. And people always dreaded that. It's like, oh, my management's going to tell me to turn this off. But that's, that is another approach. Like, do you just say, here's the requirements. And that's where having that, at, that inventory of inventories is helpful. Because you can now go and say, hey, engineering, 
We normally just talk about your production well-maintained systems. We're going to talk about all that shadow IT you have built to make your job easier. Here's what it looks like on all these metrics. It's awful. And I'm going to put that in front of the VP of engineering and say, what do you want to do about this? How do you want me to help you? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or what are the, uh, what are the functions here that actually need to be supported versus would just be nice to support? Right. And at the end of the day, that's not our call. Like we're in security, our core job. And if, if people walk away with nothing else, I'd want them to remember this. We enable the business to make wiser risk choices. The business is going to take risk. That's what they do. They engage in risk to make a profit. And our job is to help them be wiser about it. And most of the times security risk is because they just didn't even know what they were doing or what was happening or what the consequences were. And the, just the awareness of what that risk is will is often enough to get people to make wiser risk choices. That is a great statement uh, that we can tie up with because I don't see any other questions in the Q and A. Uh, that was a great presentation, Andy. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, very much appreciate the wisdom you bring to this and hope that maybe you can come visit us in person sometime soon. I would love to. We'd like to show you around. Um, and uh, you can have an interesting conversation with your cleaners about the power supply for your... Uh, yeah, it was fascinating because it really was tucked away in a corner that I'm like, I've never seen that switch get pushed. So, Well, that's, as you know, there's a lot of great horror stories in... Uh, the various security and operations departments about the cleaning staff unplugging things so they can plug in their floor polisher. Yep. I yeah. actually have a, a really good one since we have a couple of minutes. My favorite uh, power story was actually, I think, the Baltimore Aquarium, which uh, you know, they come in one morning and the master circuit breaker has flipped. There's no power. A lot of fish are dead that relied on, you know, very sensitive you know, heat, but they can't find the problem. They come back in the next morning. Exact same thing has happened. We finally get like an entire volunteer crew and all their staff to come in and sit in the aquarium all night long to figure out what was going on. And it turns out that they had uh, they'd recently installed, you know, an emergency lighting system that would run all night. You just to make sure there was specifically light in all of the places. And an octopus was unhappy with it because it's tank was had the light shined into it. So in the middle of the night when it wanted to go to sleep, it opened up its lid, it squirted water at the emergency light which shorted it and the master breaker, then went to sleep. Excellent. Reminds me of uh, a few of my undergrads. Uh, <laughs> but that's a story for another time. And uh, thank you everyone for attending the seminar today. Uh, we will have another one next week, next Wednesday, uh, just before Thanksgiving. Um, thank you again, Andy, and we'll look forward to seeing everybody at some time in the near future. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a great evening.